Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, grab them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to continue our study of Hebrews this morning entitled Jesus, Our Great High Priest. We'll look at uh, chapter 12 together. I want us to look at these first three verses. Uh, This is one of those incredible passages. Um, We'll read them now and then we'll come back to them in a few minutes. But uh, these first three verses uh, really be our anchor for everything that we think about in these next few minutes. So I'd love if we could all read this out loud together. Can we do that? Can we just read it out loud together? You guys ready? Here we go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Now, if you have your Bible, slide down to the bottom of Hebrews chapter 12. Here, we're gonna hear the fifth warning. Uh, You'll remember if you've been here over the last few months that there are five different warnings in the book of Hebrews. There's this warning and then a consequence if you don't heed the warning. Uh, This is the fifth of of the five. It's down in verse 25 uh, through verse 28, but this is verse 25. Here's sort of the strong part of the warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? So here's the warning. God is speaking. The warning is God is speaking. And so you better listen. (laughs) The warning is God is speaking. So the invitation is to listen. And then the writer goes on to talk about how powerfully God is speaking. I want you to hear verse 26 through 28, uh, 29. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, The writer quotes um, Haggai, the prophet Haggai, chapter two, verse six, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And he quotes this line from Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 24, our God is a consuming fire. The problem is the people who were hearing this or reading this letter, the problem is they were becoming indifferent to God's voice. God was speaking, he was speaking loudly, he was speaking clearly, and they were becoming indifferent to his voice. And the punishment was gonna be discipline and judgment. You guys know a little bit about uh, indifference. Uh, We've talked about indifference a little bit around here. Uh, We've used this phrase a couple of times. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. 
God is speaking and God's people are just indifferent. The people of God have become indifferent to his voice. And the writer is saying, he's going to discipline us. He's going to discipline us. And it sort of gets to this idea, ultimately, that there's going to be judgment. So don't be indifferent. Now, let's just look at this idea of discipline for just a second. I want you to see this, what he says about, indif- uh, about discipline. Uh, God's not out to get you every time that you do something wrong. That's not the point of discipline. He's a loving God, and he wants us to grow from indifference to intentionality. So if you have your Bible, slide back up to verse 4. We'll read down through verse 13. I want you to hear about what discipline looks like in Scripture. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses your son, as addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So a couple of observations real quick. Who does God discipline? The ones he loves. It's really important. Verse six, who does he discipline? He disciplines the one he loves. And why does God discipline? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. And what does discipline accomplish? In addition to sharing in his holiness, a harvest of righteousness and peace that enables healing. So I wanna make sure you get this doesn't say punishment, it says discipline. God disciplines the one he loves. Here's the Greek definition, just so that you can kind of um, uh, have a foundation for this idea of discipline. The Greek word is defined this way, the whole training and education of children. So when the Bible speaks of discipline, it's speaking about it this way, the whole training and education of children. And for us adults, whatever in adults that cultivates the soul God's discipline corrects mistakes and curbs our passions. I love this. God's discipline corrects mistakes and curbs our passions. Most of the time, it is related to sin, but not all of the time. Uh, As a dad, my goal was not to help my girls get really good at doing bad. Uh, My goal was not sin avoidance or behavior management. 
I wanted to ensure that I was and still am training my girls to cultivate the soul. Helping them, instructing them, encouraging them, training them body, mind, and soul. My goal is to teach them a way of living and loving that Christ-likeness becomes the normal and natural response in all of life, including hardships and suffering and joy and celebration and in their own lives and especially in their lives with others. Verse 14 talks about that. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There's this communal element to our discipline. God's not just disciplining you for your good, but for our good. There's this communal element to it. It's never only about you and your family. It's never only about this church and our faith family. It's about God's family. It's about what God wants to do in this world. We talk around a a little bit around here about being in Christ for the sake of the world. And he says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. So there's action on our part here. Our job, our call is to make an effort to be at peace with everyone. Takes initiative. We're loving first. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Mark chapter nine, verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. To the church at Rome, Paul wrote these two verses, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Verse Uh, Chapter 14, verse 19, Paul wrote, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. We are called to be peacemakers. It's our calling. It's our initiative. We don't wait for somebody else to come and make peace. We're the ones that are called to go and make peace. And then there's this language about holiness, which I love that. Holiness, this language is reminiscent of the line from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. You remember this maybe from a couple weeks ago. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So let me say it this way. The more we grow in holiness, the more we see Jesus. The more we grow in holiness, the more we see Jesus in the stranger And in the outcast and in the lonely and in the broken, the more we grow in holiness, the more we see Jesus in the marginalized and in the abused and in the afflicted and in the addicted, the more we grow in holiness, the more we see Jesus in the beauty of his creation, in the simplicity of laughter, in the tenderness of tears, in the grace of a forgiving smile. As we grow in holiness, we grow in our ability to see Jesus. And as we see Jesus, we grow in holiness. All right, let's go to the top of the chapter. Let's spend a few minutes in these first three verses that we read a couple of minutes ago. Uh, I want us to think a little bit about this question. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? I asked uh, Emma, who led our call to worship, I asked her a couple of weeks ago, If she'd answer this question, how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? I want you to hear her response. Hi, my name is Emma Turner, and I fix my eyes on Jesus through my small group. It's been so amazing just to see these past couple years how 
the people in my group have, and myself, have grown and developed into what God has planned us to be. Galatians 6.2 says, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the laws of Christ. And I think that whenever we help each other and we keep each other accountable and we share what we're going through, we make straight paths for our feet to follow, which is Hebrews 12.13. And we can help, we help each other to fix and keep our eyes on Jesus. It's awesome. How do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Emma said, I fix my eyes on Jesus by being with my small group. The more Emma grows in holiness, the more Emma sees Jesus. The more Emma sees Jesus, the more Emma grows in holiness. Let me just ask you, how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? What's that like? How do you fix your eyes on him? This is one of those commands in scripture, fix your eyes on Jesus. So how do you do it? I want you to hold on to your answer. We'll come back to it in just a second. These beginning uh, verses here of chapter 12 kind of paint this picture of all of us running a race, a race that we're called to run with perseverance. And this picture includes this idea of this great cloud of witnesses that's cheering us on in the race. It's the cheering section made up of all the people that are named in Hebrews chapter 11. I think that's kind of the way this is painted. Moses and Abraham are cheering us on. Their faith, their testimony, their lives are cheering us on. Um, Rahab and Sarah, it mentions there in Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know what you think about when you think about this great cloud of witnesses, but I have that picture in mind of people cheering me on, uh, Rahab and Sarah, but I also think about like Adele Newton and Audrey Whitaker. I, I think about Aubrey Roney and Lori Harper cheering me on. I for sure think about Moses and I, I think about Abraham and I think about this great cloud of witnesses that includes my father-in-law, Buster Keys and Leroy Pedersen and Michael Thrash and Bill Tradewell and Philip O. Guys who just cheer me on in the faith. They are people, as Casey Colbreth says, this cloud of witnesses is this joyous, exuberant crowd of spectators. They are the faithful who have gone before us, who are now witnessing our race of faith and are compassionately cheering us on. They are our fathers and mothers in the faith who are calling to us from their place of victory, encouraging us to keep moving forward and to keep trusting God even on desert days when our throats are dry and our feet are weary. These are the ones who have given us the gift of their testimony, of their lives well-lived and of their imperfect selves. The places where weaknesses has actually become a gift to us because we're reminded that no one is able to finish this race on our own strength. Every piece of the victory is given to us by the grace of our savior. I think we all have, I think we all have a personal cloud of witnesses. Let me pause here for a couple of questions. Who's in your cloud? Who are people in your cloud of witnesses? And what was it about that person that made such an impact on you? And then maybe you could think about your own race and your own life for just a second. What's the legacy that you hope to leave behind for those who come after you? 
Or maybe more poignantly, is the life that you're currently living right now in line with the legacy that you hope to leave behind? Are you that person that you wanna be? Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let me tell you a quick story. Uh, illustrate this a little bit. A few years ago, uh, my daughter and I ran the Los Angeles Marathon. And the marathon started early in the morning uh, at Dodger Stadium. And the course was going to take us all the way to Santa Monica Pier. And we were really excited about it. But when we woke up, it was freezing. And so we found everything that we could find. We had sweatshirts. We found caps. We bought gloves. I found these pants. We started the race real early in the morning before the sun came up. It was freezing cold. We had all this stuff on and we started to run. My daughter and I started to run. And as the morning wore on and the sun came up, it started to get warmer and warmer. And by the time like we'd been running for a few hours, not only were we hot, but we had all this stuff on. We're taking stuff off, hats off, gloves are off. And as we're running, we're seeing all of these clothes on the road and we're trying not to trip over sweatshirts that have been thrown by other people. And by the time we made it to the Santa Monica Pier, like two days later or however long it took us to get there, we were almost completely naked. Like we had, everything had come off in this race except the bare essentials. And when we finally made it, we were so glad that we could get some water and get into some air conditioning. It was so hot. The writer says, throw off everything that hinders. If there's something in the way, let's throw it off. Let's get rid of it. And, and, and the sin that so easily entangles. That which hinders may not actually be sin. It just may be in the way. Uh, attitudes, maybe. Habits, not necessarily sin, but they just not, may just not be good for you. They just need to get rid of it. Or convenience, our freedom, relationships, Facebook. Might not necessarily be sin, but you might just need to get away from it. Yesterday morning at our men's breakfast, John Harper was leading us and he talked about these verses. And one of the things that John said was that these verses might be referencing our wounds. He said, some of us are holding so tightly to our wounds that we're not allowing God's space to heal us. Throw off everything that hinders us. What if what hinders us is actually these wounds that we wanna hold on to, that we wanna wallow in, that we wanna blame someone for, that we wanna hold on to this hurt because it gives us a place of power and authority over someone else. What if this passage is saying, we literally need to throw that away. We need, to, we need to throw that off. That hurt is hindering you from living freely and lightly and the sin that so easily entangles. We were talking about, in my life, I can draw a pretty straight line from my wounds to the sin that so easily entangles. I don't know what this might be like for you, but Someone hits that place of woundedness and it's a straight line to anger, a straight line to fear or self-medication or gossip. The sin for the people reading this letter was unbelief. Uh, the letter talks about it over and over and over again. But let me ask you, in your life, what is the sin that so easily entangles? 
If you're not sure, you could probably ask the person sitting next to you. Uh, they would be able to tell you pretty quick, right? No, don't do that. You know what it is. And you probably know how you get there. You know when you get there. And you know what happens when you get there. The writer of this letter is saying, get rid of it. Throw it away. Get rid of everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So one more time, how do you fix your eyes on Jesus? I read the gospels. Uh, I love the Psalms. I have a Psalm for almost every occasion, but I'm gonna find myself in the gospels pretty much every day. The Jesus of the gospels is how I fix my eyes on him. The way that he trusts the father uh, the way that he's led by the spirit, the way that Jesus submits to the father as son. <laughs> I love the way that kids are just drawn to Jesus. That sick people, crazy people, outcasts, outsiders, sinners, they all just wanna be with Jesus. I love that. When you read the gospels, you just see this heart that is so overwhelming that people just wanna be with him. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, that woman says, who'd been sick for 12 years, you know. There's something about Jesus that's so magnetic. How do I fix my eyes on Jesus? I make sure that I'm reading about him, that I'm learning about him. To fix your eyes on Jesus means Jesus is your singular priority. Seeking Jesus, studying his every move, hanging on his every word, marveling at his every work. J.D. Walt says it beautifully. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, he says, is beholding the frailty of his humanity washing feet. Bowing at the majesty of his divinity raising the dead following closer and closer and closer until our eyes develop the capacity to see him in the hungry and the stranger and the prisoner and the homeless. And until our lives begin to take on the Holy Spirit in few skill of imitating him, improvising on his ways, taking on his mindset, losing ourselves in his mercy and finding our lives through his faith. He is the pioneer, the perfecter, and he will do it. What it looks like to fix our eyes on Jesus, it means literally to be fixated on the beautiful one. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I just want to give you a minute to consider him. Just take a couple of moments where we'll just be quiet and just give you the opportunity to consider him. And then Sonny will come and lead us in a time of response. Uh, if you'd like to sing along with Sonny or pray with someone or have someone pray with you or for you, there'll be some folks back there who would be willing to pray with you. Communion stations are set up if you want to respond in that way. 
or huddle up with the people around you. But before we do that, let's just take a couple of moments and let's just consider him together.